We are so glad that you're here. If we only get the chance to tell you one thing, it's this. Give yourself some grace. We want to help you redefine failure and break down the intentional, internal work that it takes to know and love who you are. So that you can stop worrying about what other people think of you. Create consistent habits and thoughts that are going to serve you. Experience more peace and less anxiety. And confidently show up as your true self. I'm Jenny. I'm Joe. And this is Of Progress and Purpose. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Remember that time we said we would have one more episode before 2021? (laughs) Well, it is now December 30th, (laughs) 2020. (laughs) But this is going to air in the new year, so... Yeah. Happy New Year, friends. (laughs) Yeah. And sorry for the delay. Things just get busy sometimes. Or they get delightfully unbusy and I want to keep it that way. That's true too. Yeah. Yeah. But guess what time it is? Oh, it's confession time. <laughs> and you're up. Okay, you want me to go first? Yes, I do. Okay, my confession is that around Christmas time, well, all the time, but Christmas time especially, I really like wassail. Um and if you don't know what that is, it's a traditional English drink. It usually has other things mixed in with it, spices, other types of juice and stuff, and it kind of depends on who makes it, what it tastes like. It's like apple cider plus citrus. Yeah. Anyway, so it's it's been a tradition in my family for a long time. Uh, My grandma used to always have a crock pot of wassail sitting on the counter, pretty much my memory, all of December. Um, So... So you come by it honestly. Yeah. But I I drink a lot of it during the winter. I think I've made it, what, like three or four times this year. We've had a few batches. <laughs> um, and, and making it three or four times means it's a gallon and a half each time. So I've made like six gallons of this stuff. And honestly, I, I do most of the drinking of it. So I've drunk <laughs> probably four to five gallons of wassail this year. Didn't get any fermented stuff in there, did you? No, I drink it too fast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so that is my Christmas time slash winter time weakness, is I really like that stuff. I like it. Good call. I like that you like it because I get spoiled. Well, and you get to smell it because it makes the house smell really good. Yes. My confession is New Year's related. It's this. I chose my word of the year for 2021 and I also can't pronounce it <laughs> so that's Would my you like confession. Me to pronounce it for you well here I'm gonna try and then you can tell me how I did it I practiced on Google translation before the recording of this episode so get ready guys are you ready Huga. yeah did I do it right uh, mainly I think your G is a little too hard but <laughs> uh, then again I don't speak Danish so do you want to tell these guys what it means? Um, well, it's hard to tell Describe. what it means in English. There's a similar word in Norwegian, which is what I was familiar with. Um, but I guess the best translation to English is coziness. That's but it's what I think. more than just like candles and blankets and warm things and stuff like that. It's it's more a state of mind than a set of physical circumstances, I guess. Yep, I agree. 
I love it. I'm so excited. Here's here's why it's my goal word. So I listened to an episode of the Family Looking Up podcast over the break, and they had on someone who wrote a book about the Danish way of parenting. And it was super interesting, but she started talking about what it means to be cozy and how it's kind of just like creating those moments in your home where everybody's present. So she talked about how you don't have conversations about like what happened at work today and what are you going to do tomorrow in school and you keep it in the present only. So one example she used is that a great way of having that kind of a moment is to play games together because your conversation is related to the present instead of related to the past or the future. And Joe's laughing because I love to play games. <laughs> He's over here games. chuckling. He hates games. So <laughs> you guys are going to have to help me convince him with my word of the year this year. But also, I just really liked the idea of presence. Because when I did Intentional in 2019, I felt like that was really... It was translatable for me for all of the different circumstances that we had. And I kind of did it into 2020. I chose the next right thing for 2020. But in my mind, that was kind of like a continuation of being intentional because I just wanted to focus on what matters most. And so this is kind of part three of that, I guess. (laughs) I'm not letting go of that word, guys. I love it so much. But Part three of that for me is to try to be more present in the moment and just letting the moment be. So we'll see how it goes. That's my word of the year. Yeah. Um, Oh, by the way, the reason that word is hard to pronounce, here's the spelling of it, but it's H-Y-G-G-E. Hygge. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) I'm impressed. But it's, it's kind of a Scandinavian concept. I think that it has to do a lot with where Scandinavia is located geographically, you know, you're up near or even above the Arctic Circle. During the winter, there's a lot of darkness and a lot of cold. And so it's it's a way of living that is kind of a reaction to that. Like, you know, in your house with your family, it's warm and cozy and you're together and you're not worried about the things outside. I like that. I think maybe togetherness is another compatible word and I like how you said it's kind of like a state of mind yeah so now that we've taken that detour (laughs) but also can I just say this I feel like there's this big hype right now about how New Year's resolutions can all (laughs) can all sit on a pin um (laughs) Well, you should just re-up on your 2020 ones, because maybe 2021 you'll actually be able to do them. Well, that's funny, is everybody's like, at least in the spaces that I'm on, don't set New Year's goals, it's just putting on the pressure, and it's not going to happen anyway, because look how 2020 turned out, and I kind of get that. I, I get the angst of New Year's resolutions, but I'm also like a huge planner, and so that's another confession is that I'm not on that boat quite. I know that everybody wants to say that goal setting is not worth it after 2020. But for me, I'm like, yes, 
It is. I'm so excited. Except that A, I believe in being, not doing. And B, I liked what Joe said last year about not waiting for New Year's or just setting a goal because of New Year's. So even yeah, though I, I choose a say, word of the year, that's why I kind of have essentially had the same word for three years because I'm still working on it. <laughs> I was just going to say, I was on, on the anti-New Year's resolution bandwagon before it was cool, so all the rest <laughs> of you can suck it. <laughs> oh, P.S., we do that. Yeah, we got you, it from Psych. Yeah, if you've seen the show Psych, you'll, you'll laugh at that probably. <laughs> If not, you'll be like, what the heck are you talking about? Go watch the show. It's funny. And it's relatively clean, too. Yep. Um, anyway, even though I am, you know, kind of angsty about New Year's resolutions in general, and nothing to do with 2020, but I agree. I think if you're into New Year's resolutions, like, go ahead. Have some New Year's resolutions. Set the goal. Because whether or not you accomplish the goal is not really the point. I mean, it kind of is, like you want to accomplish the goal, otherwise there's no point in setting it, but um, it's more about the journey than it is about actually accomplishing the goal, because 2020s can happen, you know, and we all have little 2020s in our lives, whether it's a full year or, or whatever, you know, we all have those moments where our plans change, our circumstances change, unexpected things come up, and maybe we have to pivot and we have to adjust our goals or we have to reevaluate what kind of goals we're setting. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't set goals. Um, so whether you set goals on New Year's or not, goals are still valuable. They're still worthwhile, even if things happen that cause us not to necessarily be able to meet our exact plan of how our life is going to go for the next five years or whatever. Like that never happens, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I like that. That's kind of what I mean by being versus doing. I think it evolves. And part of the reason it's so stressful is because people focus on expectations and outcomes rather than the journey, like you said. And I think that we learn so much along the way and, and we become little by little what we want and hope to become so we're already doing it so while you're setting your goals or not setting your goals don't forget to take stock of your accomplishments and celebrate your wins too yeah absolutely and don't be afraid to adjust because that's just part of life should we move on to our <laughs> to our bonus episode topic yes okay we've promised it was coming and here it is yes running and crewing a hundred mile race during a pandemic year. Oh yeah. It's been a party. Yeah. It, it Actually, really it really was, it was pretty a learning experience. <laughs> I'll let you start. Yeah. <laughs> so what we kind of thought we'd do is just kind of quickly go through a narrative of how that went. I think because a lot of people really don't have a concept of running a hundred miles or what that takes or what that feels like or what it looks like. So we'll kind of just give you the a little bit of a play-by-play -play, and we'll talk about some aspects of it and kind of our different experiences because uh, my experience running the race was different than Jenny's crewing the race. It was different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, sometimes <laughs> that's a good thankfully. thing, sometimes not. So. <laughs> um, but then at the end we'll try and uh, cover a few takeaways, things that we both learned from this experience because I think that doing really hard things like that have a way of 
changing your outlook. And so we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. So running a 100-mile race, typically people ask me, well, do you sleep? Do you eat? Uh, Do you stop? Is it all done in one day? Are you doing it all yourself? Um, they started us in waves because they couldn't have us all at the same fin- at the same start line at the same time. So they started us in waves of like 50 people. Started out at a brisk walk, <laughs> and it, one of these races, like you know, there's 300 people running the race and a uh, single track trail. So it narrows down pretty quick. There's a little bit of streets right at the beginning um, as you leave town, but then um, it narrows down to a single track, and so you're in a conga line, what we call it. Um, which was good because it kept me going slow at the beginning. Like the worst thing you can do in one of these races is to start out too fast because you're going to pay for it tenfold 60 miles later. And with most 100-mile races, you have a cutoff time, which means that you have a certain amount of time to complete the distance. The Bear 100, it's 36 hours. So the race starts at um, 6 o'clock in the morning on Friday, and you have till 6 p.m. the next day on Saturday, complete the race. And along the way, you have aid stations every, I'd say, every uh, 5 to 10 miles on average. Uh, I think the bear has 13 or 14 aid stations. At the aid stations, uh, most of them you have access to water, food, electrolyte drink. Some of the bigger ones, you'll have access to medical care. And it kind of depends on where the aid station is located and how hard it is to get to, what kinds of things are available. Um, Some of the bigger aid stations, you'll have soup, and uh, one of them had bacon and eggs, you know, and and different (laughs) stuff. So um, So you do eat. (laughs) So you do eat, yes. Um, Except that you're not always in the mood to eat. Yeah, yeah. Um, Although you really should be eating the whole time. Uh, (laughs) At least if you want to finish. Anyway, <laughs> um, you can actually finish 100 miles without food. I have a friend, Mike McKnight. He actually has his own podcast. You can go give it a listen if you're interested in all things trail running. But uh, he did a fasted 100 miler. I think he's nuts. Um, <laughs> but it is possible to do that. Um, however, almost uh, he's the only person I've ever heard of who did. <laughs> anyway, so you're... Eating and drinking, you carry a lot of stuff with you. Most runners carry a small pack where they keep uh, basic medical supplies. Uh, you want to carry water with you, obviously, because um, aid stations are only every 5 to 10 miles, so you're going to need to carry water between them. And usually you carry a few snacks with you and stuff for emergencies. So. And you can leave stuff at the aid station. Yeah, you have drop bags at the aid stations, so you can have stuff in advance, you know, if you want to change clothes and stuff. The Bear 100, um, there's quite a variation in temperature. Late at night in some of the sink valleys, the upper part of the course, you know, you can be well below freezing, whereas during the day, it can be 80 degrees. So there's a wide temperature swing there that you have to be prepared for. Basically, that's it. You have 36 hours uh, to get from point A to point B as fast as you can following the marked course. Um, <laughs> and, and there's aid stations along the way, and, and you just go for it. So so what was your per mile pace? Uh, you know, I don't actually know. I haven't figured that out. I think, let's see, I finished in 29 and a half hours. Uh, I think my pace was probably 
around 15 minutes per mile. Average. So it's slower than people think when you say running 100 miles. Yeah, that's the other thing. Including um, the elevation. Yeah, so that's that's the thing is running, I'm doing air quotes right now, um, is kind of a misnomer. <laughs> um, it's what we ultra runners tell non-ultra runners that we do, <laughs> even though <laughs> a large portion of it is definitely walking or hiking, <laughs> especially the last... Uh, 50 miles, I, I did a lot of walking. So, But um, it's pretty much power hiking if you finish under 36 hours. So Yeah, I mean... Uh, you're still going faster than the average hiker yeah, on the trail. Yeah, you're you're not lollygagging, that's for sure. The Bear 100 is known as what, uh, what they would call a hiker's race. Um, it is a tough course. There's a lot of elevation change. I think there's uh, approximately 24,000 feet of of climbing and equal descent well a little less descent because you end higher than you begin anyway so obviously there's a lot of preparation that goes into running one of these races more than you would typically do for a marathon or even a 50k or even a 50 miler there's the the physical aspect of it the training that you have to do um, in order to tow the line at the Bear 100, you have to have completed a mountain 50, a 50 mile race over mountainous terrain in um, 16 hours or less. You have to train for that and you have to train for the distance. That usually involves obviously a lot of running, although typically I don't do more mileage than uh, like somebody training for a marathon would do. My weekly mileage is, is probably similar to someone training for a marathon. Oh. But my long Saturday runs, you know, I go out for five or six or seven hours. Mm. And I might cover 25 or 30 miles in that time up and down mountains. And the big thing is time on your feet and learning how to handle eating and drinking while running for a long period of time. So that's that's kind of the training regimen. At least for... You know, some people do other stuff, especially the, you know, professional guys, but that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so there's the physical aspect of training, and then there's also kind of the the mental aspect, you know, obviously getting used to running that kind of distance to kind of wrap your mind around running for a dozen or more hours at a time. And then also a big thing is learning to handle adversity because over that distance, there's not a person alive who can just run the whole distance without experiencing some kind of adversity. Like you've had elevation sickness before. Yeah, not not while racing, but um, you definitely feel the altitude for sure if you're if you're running high elevation, especially when you've been running for so long, and then um, snow. You know, all kinds of weather. <laughs> um, the Bear 100 is known for uh, occasionally having what they call a polar bear, where you have snow on the course, or even a snowstorm while you're running. Or there's the brown bear, where it's muddy. <laughs> running overnight. I think your biggest that thing was, was sleep. That was the other thing, is, is sleep and handling the night. That can be a real challenge, um, and I'll talk more about that. But... Running through the night, that's another frequently asked question I get is, do you sleep? The technical answer is, yeah, you can sleep. Like, nobody's going to tell you you can't. But the problem is, is the the longer you stop, the less likely it is that you're going to continue. So um, most people don't sleep. 
I mean, if they can help it. And so you're running through the night, it's dark, it's cold, especially if you don't know the course well, that can definitely get inside your head um, because you can't see where you're going as easily. Hopefully the course is marked well, but all trail races, there's kind of this assumption that number one, distances are approximate <laughs> and <laughs> course markings may or may not be present depending on if the local wildlife has eaten. You really <laughs> have to have an eye for the trails. Yeah, you and... have to know what you're doing. You have to, you know, if it's an unfamiliar course, especially you need to carry maps with you. So you have to be prepared for that mental aspect of it too, because especially at night, it can really get to you. And if those kind of things really start getting in your head too much, it's really going to make it hard for you to keep going. So that that's a big aspect of the preparation too, is, is just preparing for the night. And going into the race, I told myself many times, like, if I can get through the night, I'll be okay, I can finish. But that's, you know, I kind of knew that was going to be the, per- the crux, is mm-hmm. getting through the night. So yeah, there's a lot of preparation. You gotta you gotta prepare physically. You gotta prepare mentally, and then logistically, every runner kind of has their preferences as far as food. For example, a lot of runners they really like the electrolyte drinks and the goo and and sweet things like that. I can't handle it. My stomach just turns and I start you know throwing up and. You know, that, that's not good. So I tend to be more the, you know, salty foods kind of person. He begged me for cheese and I offered it to him like five times and he didn't want any cheese. <laughs> yeah, that's... that's... <laughs> and, then, and then when we got done with the race, he was like, what, you had that the whole time and you never gave me any? And I was like, honey, <laughs> I tried. <laughs> I, I don't even remember that she gave me, offered me cheese, but... Um, <laughs> Normally, yeah, I would have gone for cheese, but... Um, Salty, savory. But sometimes, you know, you just you just kind of have to go with what, you know, take what your body's giving you, you know. And so after mile 50, I think I subsisted entirely on Coke and chicken soup. Yeah, the broth. <laughs> I, think, I think you're not alone in that. Most people want the broth and the soda for their stomachs. Yeah. Coke helps get you some sugar because you do want to take in some sugar, but I have a hard time with that, so that's how I got mine. Um, Coke helps settle your stomach, too. So, And then the caffeine helps you stay awake. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so there's logistical things, because you got to plan for what you personally need as far as calories go. Look at what the aid stations are probably going to be offering. And if, you know, you need something personal, you got to put that in your drop bag. Um, you got to plan for... Um, what clothes am I going to need? You need to have a good handle on the weather, what's possible weather-wise. Knowing how to read a weather report is really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Um, it helped me that you're super organized, I think. But just to give people an idea, gear-wise, I, as the crew, had a first aid bag with extensive first aid, and then clothes hats, gloves, long sleeve shirts, arm warmers, buffs, hats. Oh, I already said hats. <laughs> <laughs> Extra um, socks. And headlamps that needed like the batteries changed and you had a pair of shoes in case you wanted to swap shoes. I think you did at the end there. Yeah. Wash your feet and change socks once in a while because it's nice. <laughs> uh, it'll make you a new person. So there's that. And then there was a bag of food. And like he said, we did have the 
electrolyte pill, I think. Oh, yeah, S-caps S or electrolytes. Yeah. So he took a little bit of those, but he didn't really go with the goo. He just did those and then the aid station food, pretty much. Yeah. We I brought other food, but he didn't really want it. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what the gear looked like. And then you want stuff as the crew because you have to sit and wait for a while at the aid stations, depending on when he's going to get in or out. So I would have a camping chair and a book. But I'm lucky that you're so detailed. Because <laughs> he made me this little chart of like, if I finish in 27 hours, here's when I'm going to get to all the aid stations. And if I finish in 31 hours, here's where I'm going to get to all the aid stations. And then he was kind of like right in between. And he had also made me, uh, just in case I'm in the middle of these. So I was right within... Yeah. 15 minutes in or out of the eight stations. And, and because of coronavirus, I could only go to a couple of them. And yeah, his, dad, was, his dad did one too. So Yeah, that was one of the big challenges is typically your crew is allowed at um, almost all the aid stations. I think at the Bear 100, there's only like two or three out of the 13 or 14 that crew aren't typically allowed at just because of parking issues or whatever with the Forest Service. But this year, because of COVID... They were only allowed at the three biggest aid stations after mile 50. So you were allowed at Tony Grove, which was 50 miles, Beaver Mountain at mile 75, and then Ranger Dip at, my, at 92. Yeah, and um, then the finish. And then the finish, obviously. Which, for you Utahners, this was in Logan Canyon, and it ended at Bear Lake. So yeah. up in northern Utah. Yeah, so you run from Logan, Utah, over the mountains, and you finish in uh, Fishhaven, Idaho, which is right on the shore of Bear Lake. Beautiful, awesome course. I mean, and the time of year, it's running uh, late September, so the colors are just on fire in the canyons. <laughs> it's, it looks like Vermont, you know, or something. I just realized I said Utahners. <laughs> Utahners? <laughs> <laughs> I need to correct that for the future. Yeah, it's Utahns. <laughs> so. Jeez. Don't tell anyone about this guy. Even though it's going on the podcast. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really pretty course. Yeah. And this year was I mean I mean with all the crap with twenty twenty going on, like at least we got really good weather. There was no snow, there was no rain, it wasn't too hot even. It was just perfect and we hit the colors like just at the perfect time. It was just an absolutely beautiful course. I'm sure Jenny can maybe post some pictures on her blog or Instagram or whatever. Yeah, we've got a few. Anyway, it was awesome. So yeah, there's kind of all that preparation that you got to do, and you and I'm you know some people don't go quite to the lengths that I did. Part of that is because I'm a huge nerd. Uh, so the the pace chart that she was telling you about, I actually went to previous years um, and pulled all of the aid station times for all of the people who finished in the time that I was... took you like a week of Excel charts to yeah. make that. And, and I averaged them out, did a median and a mean and everything and figured out, you know, and plus I'm very familiar with the course, so I, it was easier for me to kind of do that and have a good handle on when I would be where. But yeah, I'm a huge nerd. And so I did that and I, I handed her like her and my dad and everybody that was remotely involved with the race. Pacers. <laughs> I, and, and the Pacers, I handed them all like a huge 40-page document that I <laughs> called the Crew and Pacer Bible. Um, Which is actually helpful because, well, first of all, 
I said I was not going to crew you. I said, you can sign up for this race. Go for it. I'm so excited for you. I won't be your crew. Find someone else. (laughs) So then I was grateful that I had the crew Bible because it was the first time I've ever done that. And the first time when Joe was a pacer and he ran the bear, I went with the crew and fell asleep. (laughs) So I was a bad crew. (laughs) It didn't work out. And then I was really nervous for going again and testing it out so that was helpful well that's the other thing is you do have the option to have pacers with you so you can have one pacer at a time starting at the bear you um you're allowed to have a pacer after mile 37 at right hand fork all the way through the finish so that was another thing i had to prepare and line up and i was doing that up until like the day before the race (laughs) trying to find pacers Fortunately, in the trail running community, there's lots of people who are very helpful, and I had people say, hey, yeah, I'll pace you. I don't know you're from Adam, but I'll pace you. You had so many good friends. Yeah, and I had a couple of really good friends that that helped me out with that, too. And and pacing in and of itself is like running a trail race, a small trail race, because you're doing, you know, 15 to 30 miles, or Mm -hmm. in some cases more. And so it's almost like your own little race. (laughs) And what's the pacer's job? And the pacer's job, it's kind of a misnomer because the pacer's job most most of the time is not to actually set the pace. (laughs) Usually, at least for me, I prefer to have my pacer run behind me and just kind of help me with navigation and help me keep my head in a good spot. You know, I think it's the mental really helpful to have someone to talk to, keep your mind off whatever adversity you're facing. And kind of just help you work through things and stuff. Um, they can't carry anything for you, but they can kind of be there for moral support. And uh, huge, huge. If any of my pacers are listening, I know at least one of them listens to the podcast occasionally. But uh, pacers are are huge, and so that's a huge shout out to them because uh, getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go run with some guy in the middle of the night and it's going to be more like a walk in the middle of the night. Really? And it made me feel so much more at ease because I couldn't go to all of the aid stations and make sure he was doing well. And so it was nice to know that somebody was with him after the hard parts, especially during the middle of the night when it was dark. And it was actually funny because one of his pacers was a doctor. Yeah. (laughs) And when he dropped Joe off and then Joe left with um, someone else and he says to me, so how does he look to you? <laughs> I said, well, not great, but you're the doctor. <laughs> he told me that unless he had to go to the hospital, I needed to send him on his way because that is the crew's job is to get you what you need and then get you out of the aid station as fast as possible. Yeah. Yeah. So my goal was to get in and out of aid stations um, in two minutes or less. We didn't hit that at all, but um, all, some of the times we did, but Speed is, you know, the more time you sit in an aid station, the clock's still running. So that counts against your time. And so I had an awesome crew uh, <laughs> who got me out of the aid stations. I, <laughs> I, but I did tell her multiple times before the race, I said, and I put it in the crew Bible, if I can walk, I can finish. Otherwise, meet me at the nearest hospital. <laughs> <laughs> he did. And I was like, okay, you don't look so hot, but you better go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you were so close to the end at that point. Yeah, Beaver Mountain, it was, uh, what, 2 o'clock in the morning? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, mile 75. And they had changed a part of the course that I wasn't expecting. 
and it was night and again like that mental thing like where the heck is this course taking me because it wasn't what I was expecting because I run you know every bit of that course you know training because we used to live in Logan and and I paced the bear multiple times but all of a sudden there was these changes to the course that I wasn't really expecting and I'm like what the heck's going on I you know kind of a lost a sense of where I was at and how far away the aid station was, which can be really demoralizing when you're 75 miles in. Fortunately, my pacer was was really optimistic and and helped keep me on course and, and stuff. But I was cold, I was tired, I was demoralized. And then right coming into the aid station, I got sick to my stomach randomly. And then it was freezing cold. It was in the upper 20s. And yeah, it was freezing. I was shivering, and I think you're even colder when you're running because you you do kind of heat up when you run, but then you kind of get past that point. Well, when you stop, then all of a sudden yeah. you're not heated up anymore, and yeah, so that was I think that was probably the worst Jenny saw me. So yeah. Anyway, so that's kind of how it works, how the race works, what what happens, and uh, for me, the race went really well for the most part. Which you may be wondering, how can I say that after just describing to you? (laughs) (laughs) Really? I don't understand it either, guys. But that's the thing about it is, you know, you're going to have those moments. You're going to have adversity and you just have to get through it. And you can still have a really good experience even with that. Um, And then last day station, uh, my dad and stepmom were crewing me there. And then after that, it was a short, really steep climb. But then eight miles of downhill, basically, to the finish, and it was a painful eight miles, but I made it. That was basically it. So is the downhill or the uphill the worst? Well, it depends on when in the race you're talking about. At the <laughs> beginning, the downhill's great, <laughs> but at the end, it, it, I'd almost rather go uphill because <laughs> it was just—it was quite painful. I—I I should have brought trekking poles. That's one thing I would change. Is I should have brought trekking poles with me. Cause so for you aspiring 100-mile racers. Yeah, bring trekking poles <laughs> if you're on a mountain race. <laughs> um, I think the biggest takeaway for me was never underestimate the power of a sunrise. Um, like I said, getting through the night, I knew going into the race was going to be the biggest challenge for lots of reasons. It's dark, it's cold, you're tired, you're hurting, you're sore, you can't move very fast, you can't see... And that was really when, as I predicted it, I kind of had my lowest point. And fortunately, I had really good pacers who, who helped me get through that. But we were climbing up this ridge, and the sun hadn't quite come up yet. Um, and right as we got to the top, it was like the second to last ridge of the race. So I had a downhill into the aid station, and then one more ridge to climb, and then the finish. And right as we got to the top of the ridge, there was a storm coming in from the west and it was windy and cold and you could see the clouds just in the pre-dawn light just kind of uh, rushing past and and you're high enough that it almost feels like you're going to touch them and um, I I was just dragging it I was so tired and I hadn't slept obviously and then I got to the top of this ridge with my pacer and right at that moment is when the sun crested <laughs> above the above the mountains and uh it just like it kind of broke through the clouds and it was it was like you know something from a movie like um it was it's hard to describe and i stopped and i snapped a picture of it because 
I kind of wanted to capture that moment. It was, it was that moment when I, I knew I had made it through the night and I was really tired and could hardly walk even. And, um, still had, you know, several miles to go. But it was at that point that I really knew I could finish. And I was able to start running again on the downhills. And it was just at that moment, like, I realized, like, that I could get through it and that I would be able to finish. And and so kind of to apply that to life, I guess, you're always going to have hard times. But every day you have a new shot. You have a new chance and a new new lease on life I'd say you know no matter what's happened in the past you've always got another sunrise to look forward to you have a clean slate and you can make that new day what whatever it's going to be and you have a shot to to change things from the past no matter what you've gone through beforehand no matter how challenging it may have been or how beat up you feel or how much you think you can't keep going you get that new new chance um, and it's all it's not always you know the sunrises we see every day although I would suggest that those are important and that we need to use those sunrises as new beginnings every single one of them but we divide our time up into periods we have New Year's coming up or when you're listening to this New Year's will have passed and that's a that's a sunrise you know life-changing events those are sunrises as well so that's kind of the first takeaway is, is never let a sunrise, you know, go to waste and never underestimate the power of that. I like that. What would you say to people in life or in an ultra who DNF'd? Yeah. Which um, means do not finish. Yeah. So that's, that's something I've done a few times. And I think it's kind of related to that principle of sunrises and new beginnings that you're not always going to be successful. If you are being challenged or if you're challenging yourself enough, there's a good possibility that you're going to fail. In fact, you know, I'd suggest that if you're not failing occasionally, you're not pushing yourself hard enough. And if you DNF, (laughs) figuratively or literally, what I suggest is, is take what you can learn from that experience and get up and try again. Uh, when I was in third grade, my <laughs> teacher used to make us memorize poems, and not just like little limericks, but like like several page poems <laughs> and speeches and things like that. So I have these poems kicking around in my head still because. But, because he just remembers everything <laughs> from his school years anyway. Well, I think that's why I remember everything. <laughs> I'm incapable of forgetting something. <laughs> because of that um, thanks Mr. Hinton but uh, one of the poems that we had to memorize was one that I think was called The Race and it was essentially the story of a young boy who started out a race and he kept falling down or he started the race he ran and then he tripped and he fell down and at that point you know the race was lost there's no way he could win but he heard his father's voice from out of the crowd saying get up and finish the race um and he gets up he he runs some more he trips again and he does this three times and each time he's hearing this he's kind of got this battle going on because in his head he's hearing quit give up you're beaten there's no way you can succeed but then he hears his father from the crowd saying get up win the race and 
ultimately he doesn't win the race he comes in last place but he gets the loudest cheer from the crowd because they witnessed his perseverance and i think that's really true of life that even if we might not necessarily get accolades of the crowd the sense of accomplishment we get from completing something that we tried so hard to complete is almost better than than winning the race the first time or finishing the race the first time and so that's what i would say is is try and learn from the experience and get up and try again and try again and try again until you finish it okay or you know whatever that is whether it's a race or or some other thing that you've got in your life that's honestly i think that's the difference between people who succeed and people who don't it's not always talent or skill or the resources that they have at some point it comes down to who's willing to bang their head against the wall the longest (laughs) yeah i think part of that is having an eye for the bigger picture and having a long-term vision that even though you didn't finish it's not actually the end of the race that there are more chances there are more opportunities On my blog, I was writing about failure and I said, which I've said on here before, that I don't really believe that failure exists. I think that it's just another word for practice. And one of my readers said, I think that failure is failing to learn from your mistakes. And I thought that was really powerful. Like, that might have changed my vision just a little bit, that it is possible to fail if you fail to learn, but no matter how hard you fail or how hard you fall, if you learn from it, it isn't a failure. And I think that that's where our strength lies as human beings. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. Not always succeeding is just a part of life, but whether or not we fail is kind of up to us and Mm -hmm. and how we react to that um, challenge. I think one of the other big takeaways for me, and I kind of knew this going in, but like was really that you can't do it alone. In this race, there were a dozen people (laughs) that were involved in getting me to the start line and from the start line to the finish line. I had three different pacers. I had Jenny, of course. I had my dad and my stepmom. I had my mother-in-law who babysat the kids. (laughs) There was hundreds of people involved in making the race happen. You know, aid station volunteers, volunteers. ham radio people that kind of keep track of where everybody is and medical personnel, like all of those people. Like, yeah, I could go out and I could try to run a hundred miles solo, um, but it would be a whole heck of a lot more difficult and I don't know if I could do it without all of that being in place. So, And I think that's true to life as well, is that we really, we need people. We need each other. And one of the things that I love about the trail running community is the willingness that people have to help each other out. And it's something that I've never experienced anywhere else, even in the greater running community that, you know, the trail running community is, you know, there's nowhere else where I've ever been where it's like you can post on Facebook and say, hey, I need a pacer for a hundred miler tomorrow to get me the last 20 miles. 
is there anybody available? And somebody hops on there and says, hey, yeah, I live here and I'll, I'd be happy to pace you, take work off and, you know, and, but there's people like that all around us in, in life that want to help us. And we also need to be one of those people. And I really kind of, you know, I don't, I'm not too, uh, you know, hippie or anything, but I believe that life kind of gives you what you put into it. You know, if you're that kind of person that's willing to be that, that guy or that girl that is willing to help somebody else out like that, those people are going to come out of the woodwork for you when you have your challenges as well. But none of us is alone. None of us is an island. We can't do it on our own. We need each other. And so I think that especially now with all of this stuff going on with politics and maskers and anti-maskers and who knows what and you know and all that stuff we now more than ever i think we need to remember that we need each other and to be there for each other even if we might disagree on things or whatever i don't know the political preferences of some of my pacers or any of the people at the aid stations but i do know that they were there to help me so um i think that you know keeping that in mind is something that we all need I agree. Anything else to add? Nope. Okay. I'm proud of you, though. <laughs> we'll skip the recap and the one-liner and the journal prompt because this is just... This is a bonus episode. We can do whatever Just a we bonus want. episode, just for fun. But I would say maybe as you think about going into the next year, what failures this year are you going to learn from? And what people are you going to lean on? And hopefully 2020 will be a good new year. Yeah. Oh, 2021. Yeah. Dang it. Hey, and you know what? Even if 2021 ends up being just as crappy as 2020, we're going to get through it. And we're going to have a good year. And things aren't always going to go our way. But, you know, some things are going to be great. Let's just kind of roll with the punches. Spread love. Spread love. I was trying to remember. (laughs) If you enjoyed today's episode, we would love to hear from you. Tell us how the journal prompts are going for you, what you learned, or what you need the most right now. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Of Progress and Purpose. And if you ever think of someone who might like to hear us think out loud too, feel free to share the podcast with a friend. It doesn't matter how you do it. Most of all, thank you for being part of our community. We know your time is valuable and we hope you love spending it here as much as we love having you. See you next week.